Disclosure. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, any and all information presented in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making any decision. Hello everyone, Ben again from the WCP. Hope this Thursday afternoon finds you well. It is incredibly hot here in Sacramento, but the power is still on, the AC is still working, so we're all good there. But I am getting ready to let you guys listen to the next next pod. So this one is with Kevin Hofberg. He has been in financial services for 30 plus years and has done a lot and I'll let him get into it in uh, the actual podcast, but he's done sales, marketing, consulting, he's done private investment, public investments, he's done some crypto stuff. So he's done a lot in the space and has a really interesting perspective on how advisors should think about you know, how and if they should be getting involved in crypto. Um, so without much further ado, we will jump into it. Thanks for listening. And we are live, Kevin. What's up? <laughs> what's up? A good place to start. Yeah. 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 Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. I got to get Mike a bottle of wine or something to, <laughs> uh, thank him for the intro, but, um, but yeah, uh, I mean, let me just kind of lay it up real quick here for the people listening, and then we'll just dive into it. So for everyone who is listening, um, I'm joined today by Kevin Hofberg. He is a friend of a friend of mine, but um, I mean, Kevin, I'll probably just give it over to you to kind of explain your background because you've done quite a bit. But, um, but yeah, obviously, uh, you know, interested in crypto, has been involved in crypto in a variety of ways. Um background is for Kevin is kind of sales, marketing, consulting, crypto investments, a bit, a bit of everything. So maybe I'll just turn it over to you, Kevin, and we can just start with, you know, a little bit about you and then where you kind of got involved in crypto and we can go from there. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me and I'm in compliments on, you know, wading into this. We were talking before we got on and, you know, Whoever's listening to this will be an early listener to an early effort that I think is meritorious. It, um, you know, we're going to spend time talking about, you know, the advice proposition, which I believe is uh, ripe for disruption and is going to disrupt, and people are going to just have to think differently about it. And crypto is just a piece of that. But to, you know, back into that, I. Um, we were pulling some threads before we got on. I, uh, my grandfather bought me Israeli bonds when I was, you know, six or something like that. I was born in 1956. So he's buying bonds early on in the, you know, in the story of Israel. And I became aware that I own these things when I was, you know, 10 or 12. And I took possession of $25,000 worth of financial assets when I was 18. Oh, wow. Nice. Thanks, uh, uh, Grandpa. (laughs) Yeah. So this is, you know, this is a long time ago. Yeah. And that, you know, that stake uh, allowed me to buy some houses. I sold some houses. I made some money on some houses. I mean, that stake, you know, took me a long, long way. I, you know, had different jobs along the way, but the story probably starts to get interesting in 1980 when I went to Hawaii and started Lion Coffee with two college chums and, 
coffee's, you know, has always been a thing, but artisanal boutique coffee, less so. Pete's had been in operation on the West Coast. Starbucks was really just getting going. And I visited yeah. that and met Howard and, and all of that and, and met my wife. And we wound up moving to the Bay Area in 1981 when we started a marketing consulting company, actually more like a marketing communications company. And, you know, I'm 24, 25 at the time, whatever that is, 25. And I was frustrated that my clients weren't spending more money with me. So I wrote a workshop called High Performance Marketing. And honest to God, what I knew about marketing, you could put on a matchbook, but I fell backwards into working with bankers who knew far less than I did. And so I began <laughs> a long career of working in the financial services industry around 1983 with this workshop. So this is a time when bankers are just beginning to discover the idea that they needed to sell things. And so you would find yeah. that there were uh, sales managers in bank branches, you know, which, and there hadn't been. And so, you know, yeah. this took me on this path of building training companies and then consulting companies. And then that led me into, <clears throat> into professional services. So Wells Fargo's uh, auditor at the time was uh, KPMG. They hired me and then I wound up at Arthur Anderson and Anderson Consulting and Microsoft Consulting that took me into high tech. I spent a bunch of years in high tech. Um, I venture funded a company with some colleagues, sold it ultimately to Onyx Software that took me more into software as a chief knowledge officer there. Somewhere in there, I met um, a colleague who wanted to be incredibly important in my life, a guy named Clint Corver, who's a, okay. a guy, uh, he's a PhD uh, from Stanford in something called engineering economic systems. He and I went on to start two or three companies together in 20, about 14 years ago. He and his wife started uh, a seed stage investing firm called Ulu Ventures, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I wound up being venture partner. So this long history of working with financial institutions in yeah. Australia, Asia, U.S., Canada, U.K., Europe, you know, all over the world. You know, I went from not knowing very much to knowing actually quite a bit and you know, building quite a reputation around that. Um, I did some consulting at Russell Investments and ultimately yeah. they hired me. I was, I went in as a managing director, which is a schmancy title, sort of like being an EVP. And I ran, uh, retail marketing in the U S. So we had a $45 yeah. billion dollar mutual fund complex and yeah. the advisor channel. So I know we're going to talk about yeah. that point of views on on advisors. So you know, I'm pulling this through line of sales and marketing and consulting around business development, sales, marketing, learn some things about uh, decision making. And so that became a feature of, of that. I retired from Russell. I've retired three times now in 2016. They had been serially bought at that point. Okay. Uh, the current owner is a private equity firm. And I didn't want to be part of that. I don't think I'm saying anything sure. to make anybody mad. Other people decided they wanted to be. I just didn't. Yeah. yeah. Um, hey. So I um, I had age and years of service. <clears throat> I retired. That allowed me to get my um, non-quals off of their balance sheet. You know, I just, the idea that they were going to lever up the balance sheet to the amount that they did and they have just didn't want to be, you know, at that, you know, that kind of risk. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, I worked in the nonprofit sector for a little bit and then in We'll get to crypto in just a second, but in about three years ago, I joined Clint Corver, his wife Miriam Rivera, and the crew at Ulu. 
um, spent uh, almost three years as a venture partner. Made, we, we made a bunch of venture investments in crypto uh, companies. So buying equity in companies, also buying coins. And yeah. we're developing a liquid crypto uh, hedge fund strategy when I left. Um, yeah. So let me pause there. I bought my first coins in 2016 or 17 as the okay. ICO boom was booming. So I bought... Uh, uh, Bitcoin, Litecoin, and ETH. Yeah, and yeah. the you know Bitcoin would have been hundreds of dollars, and I forget what the price was. So I'll pause yeah. it. Yeah, no. Um, I mean that's that's a lot. Like your your background is clearly kind of, um, you know, just financial services across the board for thirty plus years. So yeah, so forty. Yeah. yeah, forty. There you go. Yeah. Um, well, so like the point of this podcast is, as you obviously know, is uh, to help kind of financial advisors understand, you know, solutions around crypto, Web3, DeFi, all that sort of stuff. So I'm curious to kind of think like where, where does your head go? If you're kind of like, you know, your average advisor at a warehouse or a hybrid or RA, wherever you are, like where, what do you kind of, what would your intuition be about crypto? Dough. Like a lot of advisors I talk to are kind of split down the middle. Like um, they're they're like on the spectrum. So like you've got maybe twenty percent who are like super into it, and then everyone else is kind of like in the middle on positive or negative. And then you've got like some people on the far side who are like, "This is all fraud." So yeah. um, where, where where do you kind of initially go with like being an advisor in crypto and how <laughs> to think about it? Yeah. So I think we with your patience, I feel like, you know, we need to sneak up on that a little bit. And the, um, you know, the landscape is there's, you know, roughly a million license holders in the U S uh, now. And of those million license, so I'm talking about series seven, 66, yep. yeah, 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 24, that sort of thing. <clears throat> well, there's lots more, but I think those are the ones that would be relevant here. 66. Sure. And of that, there's probably, 300,000 or so that are, uh, you know, client facing, working with clients, maybe it's 250, 300, some, you know, somewhere in there. And it skews older. Yeah. Um, as sure. does yeah. the wealth profile. So when you look at, you know, the average millionaire household of which there's, um, what are there? 11,000, 11,000. I forget what the number is. I had that. So anyway, you, I think there's 11,000 millionaire households in the U.S. It might be bigger. Okay. There's a number. Okay. And so it's just yeah. skews a little. Sure. And um, advisors skew older. So I think part of the way you have to parse this is, are we talking about advisors who are my age, in which case you're retiring and your clients are probably within 10 years of your age. And so yeah. they're dealing with imminent or current decumulation, or sure. is it this next generation of advisors and is it the next generation of clients? So I think you got to, start there yeah yeah i i mean i think there's definitely a point to that although anecdotally i can say that like there are a lot of older advisors i know in 55 60s who are you know looking at crypto is kind of like the next big thing right so they're and you know they a lot of these guys too if they're in their 50s maybe early 60s they still kind of look like they've got a lot of runway left right um particularly if they enjoy their practice so yeah and then also, I guess another kind of thought to loop in there is like, as you know, if they want to ultimately sell their practice, it needs to look a certain way to achieve, you know, the multiple that they want. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think, yes. Um, 
Yes. There's 11 million millionaire households. That's the number I was looking for. So yeah. about 100 million households, there's about 11 million millionaire households. So, I mean, what's been true about advised clients, and this has been true as, as long as I've been in this business. So this mm-hmm. is at least 35 years, okay. is that <clears throat> um, clients have always had assets away. Uh, so what, yeah. if, if you were a Merrill Lynch advisor back in the day, you just never had all their assets. And even today, yep. the percentage of <clears throat> clients who are 100% advisor dependent is actually quite small. It's in the 15% range. For sure. Yeah. So 30% yeah. of millionaire clients are 30% are fully self-directed, which then leaves another 32% that are event-driven and 24% that are advisor assistant. So when you see these statistics about ownership of crypto and they're all over the place, but you know, it's pretty high. So there's a fidelity digital assets report that says, you know, 87% of affluent people, you know, are thinking hard about digital assets and, and, you know, again, what does that mean? You know, they own them, they own a little bit, they own a lot, but it's, you know, it, it, if you're an advisor, it's not unreasonable for you to assume a, that you don't have all of their assets Totally. All, even all their financial assets and that B, um, folks are in crypto. And so yeah. I think you're, we're now getting up to the point which you're, I think, asking about is like, what is an, so, okay, now advisor, what do you do? For sure. Yeah. And it, it's, so I think, let me just put some ideas on the table. You pick up the ones that, you know, the, that you want. So one is, is this a planning thought or a portfolio construction thought? Yeah. So you had um, you had a uh, you had somebody on uh, recently who uh, is the CIO of. Um, oh, uh, yeah. Brad Roth. Uh, yeah. And I'm talking about no the plan plan. Uh, or, oh, Peter Lazarus. Yeah, yeah. So Peter, you know, people should just go listen to that podcast. It was just absolutely brilliant. And he's you know very thoughtful about crypto as part of a portfolio and. And yeah. we can talk about how much of an allocation or is it a planning thought in yeah. which case you're not thinking about it as part of, uh, you know, a market based uh, asset allocation. It's just this thing over on the other side. So, I mean, I think those are those are reasonable thoughts in the same way that, you know, how do you think about rental real estate? Is that a yeah. planning thought, which it is for most advisors, or yeah. would that cause you to think about portfolio construction in a different way? For example, I own a ton of rental real estate. Yeah, so I have bonds. So it's yeah. very difficult for an advisor to build me a, a managed, you know, to sell me a managed portfolio, because if they don't put a bunch of bonds in it, you know, they're going to be getting angry notes from, yeah. you know, from some office saying, what, you know, why are you putting this 66 year old guy in a 90, 10 portfolio? Interesting. Yeah. But from a, yeah, yeah. But from a, and you, you had a younger advice, a young guy on, uh, Zechariah or something. Yep. He's twenty-seven. Yeah, yep. you know, he tells a story about a ad- uh, couple who are you know fell backwards, or maybe they were smart. They've got it sounded like millions of dollars of crypto. Yeah, and again, you, you know, is it a is it a planning thought or is it a portfolio construction thought? Yeah. So I think that's you know this gets to what is the advisor's self conception, what is the advisor's business model, how does the advisor think about adding value and yeah. you know this gets to uh, i'll make one more point and i'll stop and breathe so <laughs> this 
100 basis points, 125, 150, you know, whatever that trading yeah. range in, has been remarkably yeah, yeah, yeah. durable. I mean, since advisors have been charging fees, you know, versus getting paid commissions, you know, it's been there. Yeah. And yeah. the, but the cost of product has gone down. So, you know, yeah. at Russell, uh, six years ago, seven years ago, the cost of product was 85 basis points. Mm-hmm. And today, and, and let's, well, I'm not talking about the shenanigans that go on selling order flow and so on. The cost of a, a rebalancing tax, tax efficient portfolio yeah. at scale is probably five or six basis points at subscale. Yeah. You know, maybe it's 10, 12, maybe it's as high as 20 basis points. So the advisor is sitting there and the customer client may or may not know this thinking, you know, how do I justify what is the value that I am bringing to the client such that, yeah. that I'm this premium of 75 to 85 basis points is worthwhile. And I think it now brings us to where you're trying to get me, which is a more interesting conversation about goals and outcomes and things like that, which are really current in the space. And then how does this full basket of real and financial assets, um, you know, contribute to the achievement of these, you know, these different outcomes. And again, I think your yeah your young advice, your young advisor, um, Zach- Zechariah, yeah, yep. makes a really good point of that as he's talking about, uh, you know, human beings who have act, you know, they're getting benefits, they have a earning stream that comes from a particular industry. Um, you know, that's just a very different human being. And I think it's more a planning centric conversation than it is a portfolio allocation, although there's both. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot to kind of think about in there. So like where, where my head kind of went is, you know, the old school advisors, you know, growing up in the 70s, 80s, whatever, like they kind of did a bit of everything, right? Like you kind of had to, you know, know your stocks and do your security selection. And then you also kind of had to plan around life events and, you know, maybe throw insurance and do a bit of a bit of everything, right? Whereas these days, everything is so hyper focused and hyper commoditized, like, no one can be an expert in more than maybe two or three things right like it's not like you like you'd mentioned this in some of our emails it's not like you're gonna out out security select like ray dalio or uh jeff gumlock or something right like how are you you can't do that so i think where my head went is like how can advisors be you know full you know holistic advisors when you do have all these disparate things to consult on right so if it is like your example like residential real estate and rental income like me as a 65 advisor like in theory you shouldn't have damn near anything to say about that because that's not really what my day-to-day is right but if it is you know 20 30 percent of your plan there's you know there's they, they kind of conflict right so well yeah and you think about so the you know modern portfolio theory and the you know these idea of non-correlating or loose or or low correlation assets you know what yeah. why a 60 40 portfolio well it's that and you know what we have seen is that on times of market stress you know the idea of non-correlating assets sort of disappears you know correlations go to one <laughs> and everything, <laughs> yeah, everything moves yeah and 
you know, this narrative around crypto being, or in particular, block uh, um, Bitcoin being a store of value, like oh, didn't yeah. store a lot of value, you know, recently. And, <laughs> um, you know, and historically, what's interesting is, and there'll be people who can disagree with me, but, you know, real assets have been the most durable store of value. I mean, if you look at, oh, yeah. out, for example, World War II in Germany, so just as much devastation as you can imagine, you know, who, you know, how was, how was wealth rebuilt? It was rebuilt by people who owned agricultural land. It was rebuilt by people who owned the land, uh, yeah. mines. It was built by people who own real assets. And yeah. most financial advisors, particularly if they're coming, you know, they're in the securities business, you know, they're only paid on financial assets. Yep. And so, whereas this holistic idea, I mean, I, you know, my personal view is that you need to be own, you need to own real assets. Now, you know, is gold a real asset? We can debate that. I'm not a huge fan sure. of yeah. you know, but you know, the idea of having a you know a full a multi asset view, and I think it's within that context. If you're an advisor who's can go there, and you're not yeah. um, disincented for going yeah. there by who you work for. I think you, you know, your win is to be more planning centric and realize that the, you know, the range of, you know, the outcomes that your clients are looking for are nuanced. And so, um, well, so why own crypto? So you could, so you could, you could up until January make the argument like the crazy sharp ratio and non-correlating and, you know, the portfolio effect of just owning two, three or four, five percent of it, you know, was really dramatic, you know, and, 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 and then everything all went to hell. And um, so, you know, tough from a traditional portfolio allocation point of view, because it, it just so didn't do what it was supposed to do. But from a planning standpoint, I keep coming back to that. I don't know. Did if it was a low allocation, I don't know. Was it fun? Was it exciting? You know, did it cause you yeah. to have conversations with your family that you didn't? Did it, did it help you? Was it a joint project with your grown kids? I mean, there's, yeah. it, I mean, I think that advisors do well, um, to, 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 to be, to be in those conversations. And at the end of the day, you know, you, you may say, look, as you're, as your voice of reason or the person who's defending the future version of you from the current version. I think that economically, this is like going to a casino, but if you want to do it, let's talk about how to do it in a way, uh, you know, that's not crazy. And so I, I, yeah. I, I can only pause there, but I, I think that's, I think that's where I think there's a bunch of advisors that are either there or need to get there. Yeah. And I'll stipulate, I'm not a huge Fan. I mean, I've got points of view about where I think the craziness is, but I, I, mean, I, I think that I just think that's where you, you, you got to go if you want to be fully engaged with your clients. You got to talk to them about the things that they want to talk about and understand yeah. that um, there's a range of outcomes uh, on offer. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. I mean, again, there's there's a lot to kind of think about there. Like um, one thing I kind of come back to a lot and. Um, you know, that your fidelity or what was it? Yeah. Your, the fidelity case study that you sent me kind of helped highlight this too, is just kind of like um, demographics and who's interested in what, right? Yeah. So like, yeah. 
um, you know, the, the U.S. apparently globally is the laggard as far as adoption of crypto goes. Asia yes. leads Europe next and then the U.S. for whatever reason, yes. um, despite all the innovation we have here, is a laggard here for yeah, and I was and I'm curious why that is. Like I'd be curious to try and think that through. But um but generationally, young people, you know, they know about it, they've heard about it. Like I had a buddy from Brazil send me um a hundred bucks of Bitcoin today for a friend's wedding. He was yep. like, How do I get you the money? Right. I was yep. like, Well, just send it to my Coinbase wallet. And he's like, Oh, there you go. Right. So like I think at least my generation, the generation below, are going to be more inclined to use this stuff more regularly. And then that also kind of ties in with like this generational wealth transfer that is going to happen too. Right. Yep. So like, um, I guess this is kind of a long winded way of saying that, like, I think it, I, I think we're still early, but I think it's kind of like the internet in the late nineties. Like there's a lot of stuff that's going to shake out that was not good and was not a business, but there's a lot of stuff, you know, you're going to have Microsoft in there. You're going to have Oracle in there. You're going to have Intel in there. You're going to have these companies that create this new web. Um, so I guess to kind of agree with your point, I think advisors are going to have to be a part of it one way or another, right? Like you could, you couldn't avoid the internet. In the news, really. yeah. So, so I, let me pick up on a couple of themes. And I, I think one of the things we need to set aside is <clears throat> everybody's favorite use case, you know, money transfer and remittances and things like that. I mean, you're, the people that I think are going to wind up listening to this podcast, people you talk about are US centric or certainly G7 centric. And so these use cases around you know, getting money to your yeah, mom yeah. in Guatemala or whatever. I mean, I think we just need to set <clears throat> those aside. Those are, you know, those are valid use cases and make total sense. And in the same way, you know, as you're, uh, you know, as crazy as, uh, as uh, crazy volatile as different coins are, you know, the, the Argentine, Peso is crazy too. So again, let's. Yeah. I want to just set those those yeah. use cases aside and focus on the advised client. So again, let's come back to where I was before. If this person is being advised, there's some level of affluence. Otherwise, the advisor is just not going to have them as a client. Yeah. Right? So I'm. 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 I want to stay focus there. I mean, we're not talking about somebody who's 22 years old and who just put their $2,000 check into BTC or into some crazy coin, Dogecoin, and they just made a pile of dough. I, th I think definitionally, let's just agree that we're talking to, to somebody. Yeah. Who buy. So there's some amount of affluence. Yeah. They're one of these 11 million millionaire households, or they're the next, they're just behind that, of which there's yeah. you know, another 30 million households. So you know we're we're in that trading range. In which case, I think the thought process for the client is this is a this is a highly speculative way of accumulating wealth versus this is a great way to send remittances to my family in Guatemala. Yeah, I, I, so I would agree with that. At least in you know Western countries, like we don't have problems sending money. Yeah. back and forth. So that use case is definitely diminished when you can pull up Venmo and send a hundred bucks to your buddy. Right. Correct. And so um, the advisor is not, I don't believe the advisor is entering into the conversation about, should I use a, a, should I use uh, a blockchain rails to send money to my mom? And yeah, and yeah. I, I think the conversations are around, gee, I'm interested in investing in 
yeah something and let's talk about what that is why well because it's interesting but but the the punchline is because i think i can get rich i think i can make money by doing this um and 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 so i think that's what we're talking about when we're yeah are talking to clients yeah i would my gut what so like if i'm maybe 40 50 60 whatever with some kind of money like should i you know allocate to this bitcoin thing right um where I go is similar to what you mentioned earlier is like the hard money aspect of things, right? I think particularly over the last, you know, two, three years, we've seen, what is it like 30, 40% of all us dollars ever created happened in the last couple of years. So like, whatever you think about, you know, quantitative easing and money printing and all that sort of stuff, it's undoubted that we're just making dollars out of nothing. Right. So like, I think, I think the best one of the best use cases still for at least Bitcoin is, you know, that hard money aspect and the preserve of value, right? Similar to all other hard assets, right? Like things that can't be easily replicated and duplicated tend to hold their value over time better. So it might not even be just, you know, I'm going to get dumb rich off this because that trade probably happened nearly 10 years ago, right? Um but, it but might if you're be a Bitcoin maximalist, that trade is available right now. I mean, well, yeah. Um, I mean, if you think I was listening to some podcasts the other day about just, you know, Bitcoin's current like total market cap. And if, you know, you have a certain amount of order flow come from, you know, global currencies and then also, you know, cash equivalents, you know, bonds and stuff like that. And then, you know, if you think about stocks too, like if you get a couple of trillion bucks flowing to Bitcoin from those places, you know, you could two, three, four X the market cap yep. fairly easily. So, um, but it's going to be super volatile <laughs> yep. the whole way too. So at least for the next couple of years, I would imagine. I, I, mean, I don't, I don't think that you and I are, are you're, we're making slightly different versions of the same point. The advisor conversation around crypto, I think is, is, is centered around some, some outcome that has to do with creating wealth, preserving wealth, transmitting yeah. wealth to a future generation versus these other, you know, these other kind of use cases. And so then I think what the, you know, the advisor is, you know, is, and we should, and I want to talk about product formats too as part. So the advisor is, you know, the responsible advisor is asking, you know, the kind of questions that Peter poses sure, yeah. around, you know, what are you trying to do? How will you know when you get there? You know, what's yeah. the counter argument? <clears throat> when when I was at Russell, we spent a lot of time talking about the idea of being a multi-asset investor. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know to what extent Russell really was, not certainly not in all the products, but the idea of being a multi-asset investor is that you have a thesis and you're indifferent to the product format yeah. Right. For accessing that thesis. So if you've got a, you know, if you've got a, well, yeah, I mean, if you've got a thesis around, you know, the urbanization in, in India, uh, you know, how do you access? Well, you could buy the equity of companies, you know, you could buy a rubber plantation that's going to make the yeah. tires to go on the trucks. You could buy the debt of something. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, ways to sure. do that. And I think that the, you know, so so part of interrogating the problem, like, why do you want to buy Bitcoin? It's really no different than, you know, why do you want to buy, you know, farmland or why do you want to buy anything? 
Um, it's around, you know, like, what is the outcome that you're hoping to achieve? You know, what's the thesis? Yeah. And is this, uh, is this instrument, is this mechanism, is this vehicle actually the right way to achieve that thesis? So yeah. you said, you know, this could be a gold replacement, fair point. Um, and, you know, I don't think the gold trade's been all that interesting these last few years, but, you know, an advisor could have this conversation, well, is Bitcoin the right way to achieve that objective? Or is it, you know, is it something else? And I think that's a great conversation. At the end of the day, the, the client may decide or you, everybody might think, okay, BTC is actually a reasonable thing. And then we move to, okay, well, how do you, how do you access that? What's the right way to own uh, Bitcoin? Yeah. Um, I think we get past, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum and maybe another half a dozen coins. And I think you're just in a whole other realm right now. And <laughs> for sure, yeah. for sure. Um, I don't, I don't know if maybe you listen to the, uh, podcast with Jeff Hunter about crypto gaming. That was kind of a fascinating one. Um, cause that's definitely deep water for me. That's new, but in the spirit of, you know, what is this token? Like, is this really a thing? Like he brought up, uh, uh, play to earn as like a concept, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and you, you can kind of think about it. The way I kind of thought about it was like, okay, well, how many people are using this? Like, what's the value they're getting from it? Like, is there growth in this or not? And similar to any other kind of business, right? Like, that's what the value is. If people use it and get value out of it, that's generally kind of what the value is. So, but one of his example was this thing called run blocks where you go run and you earn, you know, some native token that you can swap out on, uh, you know, whatever exchange you're using and ultimately get it into us dollars. And, you know, that's, that's an idea. And maybe, maybe it makes early people money, but most people probably shouldn't be in something like that. Right. <laughs> Particularly if it's like an investment. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think your point's right that you got to be real careful outside of the top 10 basically. Yeah. You, you made a reference uh, a few minutes ago and you made this reference on previous podcasts about, you know, drawing an analogy to the, the dot com boom, which, you know, is the run up to the millennium and then it all goes to heck. Um, and, you know, so, you know, there's a period of time that, you know, Google is born in, in a time of uh, stress and Microsoft and all these things. And so they, you know, they emerge out of that. You know, there was, a zillion miles of fiber laid in that period of time. And it all went dark. The companies went bust, but it allowed, it opened up globalization because it, you know, it meant that you could move IT and, and call center support to India. So, you know, things you know came out of this. Yeah. The thing that I, I would, you know, draw attention to. Um, so we go back to that period of time. These are companies that are, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of venture capital, nowhere near the amount that's being invested today, but, uh, good, bad, or indifferent. There were people who, you know, had a point of view. There was some amount of due diligence that went into it. Yeah. Um, you know, and so these investments are made. Why it was so spectacular is that is that public markets were quite different. So back then, you were rushing to go public. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, you would you would you'd come up with a business plan. You'd be going public in you know famously in months. You know, and, but in a really short period, of time, that all that's gone. And so, you know, my generation had this very exciting opportunity to buy those securities. And and uh, so if you were smart, you bought a basket of them. You didn't put all your money on one thing. And so maybe mm -hmm. got lucky on a couple of things. And then, you know, things went bust. And um, so the market broadly repriced. 
And again, my generation had the opportunity at that point, if you had capital to buy great companies that were deeply on sale. Yeah. And when we come, you know, now we come forward and, you know, we get the, you know, so we have the financial crisis. So there's another repricing. Yeah. Although it's different. Yeah. Um, there's, um, and so now we get into this environment where the Fed floods the zone for what at the time were, you know, I think, I think people can look back and say maybe they shouldn't have done it. But the fact of the matter is um, they did it. Um, and so here we go. So they flood the zone. There's all this capital. And so there's been this unprecedented bubble over the last 12 years where money's cheap. Yep, you have yep. these all these macro tens piling into this. So, you know, you've got like, just so. So here we go. We've got savers are getting punished. Money's cheap. Um, and equities aren't really repricing anymore. You know, this long square root shape recovery, this much despised bull goes on and on. And so your generation, generation that follows for a decade doesn't have the opportunity to buy risk assets on the cheap because they're not repricing. Yeah. There's no cycle. And so <clears throat> then we run into a pandemic and now you've got, it's not, you know, it's not fiscal policy. It's, it's, you know, it's a legislative policy. So now we've got, we're flooding the zone now with more capital. And yeah. so there's a generation of people that says, you know, where's my opportunity? I can't buy a house. Yeah. Um, they haven't repriced. So, you know, you know, the housing stock has repriced periodically over my lifetime. That hasn't happened, you know, recently. And I, you know, traditional risky assets, they haven't repriced. You know, bonds are a stupid bet. Cash doesn't look like a good bet. And so, you know, this, I think, explains, you know, the interest in these other, you know, the meme stocks and so on and so on. And so, yeah. on. So, so now we're seeing a big repricing. And, you know, are we at the bottom of that repricing? You know, reasonable people can disagree, but it, you know, this is, this is the environment in which, you know, these advice conversations are taking place. So if you're my age, uh, you know, and again, Peter uh, raises this point. I mean, I picked a, a lousy decade to retire in. You know, my uh, 40 years of accumulation is being repriced as I speak. Yeah. Um, and so that's a different advice conversation than, you know, your generation, the generation that follows, in which case, I mean, there's a lot of quality businesses on sale and for sale. So now we get to the idea there's, 15,000 tokens out there or something like that. Yeah. You know, I think the distribution of potential Microsofts in that 15,000 is not as favorable as the distribution of potential Microsofts or Googles or whatever that were available in those. Yeah. You got a denominator problem that's really, I think, quite different. Yeah. And, and I think that point's definitely fair, right? They're like, particularly because a lot of this stuff is like so technical too. Like it, it can be tough to kind of translate and see what's real. Um, yeah. And fraud is, you know, absolutely a thing. Like, shoot, I mean, we had some very big projects have some trouble earlier this year that people yes. were just kind of blown away by. Like the Terra yeah. Luna one to me comes to mind. Like yeah. nobody thought that was going to happen. Um, or at least most people didn't. Um, but I think that kind of leads to like, so if, you know, you as the advisor know that your value add is not in security selection, but you know that you kind of want to be, 
or feel like maybe you even have to have some kind of uh, knowledge or solution or, you know, point in the right direction for your clients. Like, what do you, what do you kind of think makes sense for the industry? Is it, is it an ETF or is it just kind of like a, you know, an accredited hedge fund, uh, which works for some people, but not for the vast majority of people? Like what, particularly as a product guy too at Russell, like where do you think yeah. you can wrap up, you know, the expertise and then distribute that in a fair way? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's, that's a, that feels like a really, uh, like a big question. So <clears throat> it, um, you know, the down the middle advisor, you know, right now is accessing markets through ETFs mutual funds of different descriptions, <clears throat> maybe, you know, depending on the strategy, you could, you know, you could have an SMA sleeve and you could be owning, you know, a uh, individual securities that are part, you know, part of a strategy. There's this custom investing. Yeah. So there's all these, you know, things <clears throat> going around that don't have an obvious place for, uh, you know, for, for, for crypto. So in the U S you know, we've got, you know, there's that futures thing, which I think yeah. is, it's not, wouldn't be a product I would ever recommend. There are trust products out there. Grayscale's got a bunch of them. Yep. I, yep. you know, I know, I know that your lead in is going to stipulate that this isn't uh, financial advice. It is I don't, most definitely not advice. <laughs> yep. So I, I am personally not a fan of Grayscale's products, although I've gathered a bunch of assets in that. I mean, there's a ton of slippage there. Yeah. Uh, you know, on the NAV, you know, and they're playing chicken with the SEC. Uh, <laughs> you know, they would love for the SEC to agree to, you know, to a, a true uh, ETF. And I, you know, if I knew how that was going to happen, I, you know, I could probably figure out a way to make that bet and I could be rich. You know, is that coming? I just don't know. So that leaves, you know, so I think the, the hedge fund format. So like somebody like Brad Roth and Thor, I yeah. think those are really interesting and um, gets, you know, so I think we should spend some time on that. And so I, yeah. I like that idea a lot. Um and then, you know, there's direct ownership. And I think Brad did a good job of just picking through. I mean, it's, it's a pain in the butt. The just so you've gone through this brain damage. So opening up an account at where, you know, yeah. Coinbase is, I think, is an incredibly unimpressive company to do business with. Um, I think Gemini is just leagues more professional and better. This is not an endorsement. It's yeah. just my direct experience. So, you know, where do you open these accounts? It's a pain in the butt. You know, even depending on what state you live in, you know, you can or can't do business with, you know, somebody. And then there's, yeah. you know, the so, so the idea of, you know, opening an account, getting a wallet, doing all that, it's not for the faint of heart. No. And, you know, the advisor really can't play any good role in that. Um, well, they, they probably shouldn't unless they spend all day every day being a crypto advisor. I think right? that's right. Like, so, so there's all all of that, and it's not easy. So this, you know, so now if you're a wirehouse advisor, <clears throat> you know, I, I just think you're out of bounds. I mean, I don't, I just don't think yeah. for a home office, your compliance guys, you know, I, I know that they don't want. It. So I think, yeah. you know, probably you're better off being an RA if you want to play, you know, in in this game. The the when you think about so what are the what are the strategies? I think there's broadly <clears throat> three strategies on offer. So there's HODL, HODL, or HODL. You know, you're yeah. gonna you know just you're gonna buy it, and you're gonna hang on to it. So it's a passive yeah. strategy. 
there's a trick you could trade this stuff as well let's come back to that or you know and or you can you know you could stake this stuff you can you basically yeah. attempt to generate yield yeah. <clears throat> and yeah. you know in all cases you got to think about who's on the other side of that trade yeah. You know, who, who else are you in the marketplace? So Ray Dalio famously said in 2016, you know, if you're an active trader, you just have to understand you're, I'm on the other side of that trade and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to win that trade 97 times out of a hundred. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're just competing. You know, you, yeah. so if you think you yeah. know something about some project and such that somebody else smarter than you doesn't know, you're kidding yourself. Yeah. And so, he- yeah. Oh, just real quick. That's kind of been my thought around your general advisor doing security selection, yes. even in public equities these days, too. Like you're going to try and tell me you're a biz dev marketing client relationship manager advisor, and then you're going to go pick stocks. You're yeah. going to beat, you know, BlackRock. I doubt it. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so the uh, same is true. The yeah. same is true here. So the, yeah. you know, the staking strategy where you're, you know, you're going to go capture 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 18 percent yield. You've talked about that on other podcasts. I mean, you really have to ask yourself, why is that yield available? Yeah. And I mean, that was Terra, that was Terra Luna too, right? And and also Celsius. Like they're throwing out these crazy yields. And to the un, un the untrained eye, 20% looks great, right? But yeah. if you've been in financial services for any amount of time, 20% yield usually screams, you know, I'm yeah you know, moving around in the dark. So, and there, there are hedge fund products out there that are, you know, yield oriented and the guys who are, well, I say guys, it's mostly guys who are running those strategies all come from, you know, fixed income at Goldman or, yeah. you know, they've got years of doing that and they're used to scalping, you know, three and four and five basis points. And so they come into this environment so there's a lot more that's on offer. And so if you want, I believe that if you want that type of strategy, I would go, I would get into one of those hedge fund products because I've, I've seen, I've seen the inside of that beast. And these yep. are very sophisticated For trading sure. strategies. There's a ton of hedging that's going on around that and they could still get whipsawed. Oh, but yeah. if you're interested in that, I, unless you're really confident and know how to hedge and, you know, you're, you're just you're you're competing with people who are very comfortable in the world of derivatives and very comfortable in the world of fixed income. They're very comfortable in the world of trading. They've got you know access to prime brokers. You yeah, know, they just, you're just so, you're just so, yeah, way out of water. You're way out of the water. So then you yeah. move to you know trading coins, and again, if you uh, you know there's there's different models on offer there. But the good hedge fund guys are using multi-factor models. Yep. And, you know, four or five factors are probably driving it. There's going to be something around, you know, quality. So quality could be, uh, you know, market cap or, you know, there's a lot of ways to think about quality. They all yeah. do it differently, but yeah, your market yeah. cap would be an easy way to think about it. So for sure, you know, top coins, you know, who's following it, who's trading it, you know, there's a, Dirty little secret like Masari. If if you're interested in crypto and you're not reading the annual Masari report, you're crazy. So I would like that would be a really hardcore takeaway. Little known secret is that there are people who outsource their due diligence to Masari. So yeah. if Masari is following a coin and you don't see it on an exchange, there's a quality signal. Yeah. Um, momentum is a typical hedge fund strategy. 
Um, there are uh, strategies around trading, you know, around risk collars or three-sided boxes or trailing stops or, you know, whatever. But so you're, if you feel like you want to trade, you know, I think you need to come up, there's probably only a hundred coins that you should be thinking about to yeah. figuring out what those hundred are. And then, you know, you, I think you need to have an, you know, some type of trading strategy gets you in and out, you know, so again, a, a box or a collar or a stop loss or something. Yeah. And I think then yeah. you've got to feel confidence around picking those coins and just realize you're, you know, you're in the market to get somebody else. So, so absent yeah. that, you know, hire a hedge fund, which yeah. then brings us back to buy and hold. And yeah. there, I mean, I think there's only two strategies there. It's either only Bitcoin yep. or it's a basket. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a basket of what, like your top 10? Something that would be a yeah. way to think about it or, yeah. you know, or throw a dart at the top 20. But to go, I think to go much below the top 10 of market cap, if you're an amateur, you're just, I mean, you're, you're kidding yourself. Maybe, maybe you love the research. Yeah. In which case, you know, go get Masari, go get, uh, you know, tokenomics. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff you could subscribe to. Um, and you're still throwing darts, but at least, you know, you'll feel smart about doing well, it. But to me, that's more, well yeah. informed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's either to me, it's either you know BTC or go own a stock, and I, I don't even think it's BTC plus ETH. Like if you're going to go buy ETH, ETH is, ETH is a different thing. So if you're going to go buy ETH, you yeah. might as well buy, you know, Polygon and you know just Cardano the, and Solana and the rest of them. Yeah, might as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I get to kind of wrap all that back up. So if if you are an advisor, right, you've got you know sort of what what you're going at is three main things so you've got direct purchase and your hodl which is bitcoin you've got hedge funds and you know very professional investors and then where where was the other one in there was that more kind of yield farming and staking but yeah then, yeah and, and I, again i think the right way to access that would be through somebody who's pretty sophisticated versus just going and staking a bunch of your own coins i guess you could do that well uh, you know i mean yeah, I, I've mentioned this on prior podcasts too, because I remember looking at like those, you know, APYs for 20%, 18, whatever. And you like, I remember trying to look at the research or these companies, like, where can I find what you guys are actually doing? You know, yeah. and none of that's reported, right? Like, they, they don't actually tell you that they're, you know, lending it out and levering it up and doing all this crazy stuff, yeah. to, you know, whoever, <laughs> right? Um, so. Yeah. So yeah, even then, if you are curious, unless you're an insider, at least, it's, it's pretty hard to figure out exactly what's going on. There's some, you know, I mean, coming down the pike, I think are some interesting use cases. Um, when I was at Ulu, we were investors in a company called Pontoro, which is putting listed infrastructure on the blockchain. So listed infrastructure is airports and toll roads and, and uh, you know, that yeah, sort yeah. of thing. <clears throat> and so there's uh, the idea of moving this off the balance sheet of a bank where a lot of this stuff sets particularly the non-investment grade putting it in a pool fractionalizing it tokenizing it so that create that yeah. creates price discovery sure uh where you know so there's there's a notional price there's the value of the loan but now you create price discovery and then by fractionalizing and tokening tokenizing it you can now create then a next level of price discovery because it can trade 
So there are companies out there that are doing that or in every, in every large asset class, yeah. commercial real estate, residential real estate, yeah. foreign exchange, listed infrastructure. And they're, they're, you know, different places. You've got uh figure uh, provenance has got uh, home equity loans on the blockchain and putting yeah. 20 mortgages on the blockchain. So I think within a relatively, within a reasonable period of time, you know, two to 10 years, I think advisors are going to have the opportunity to access other asset types through the blockchain. Gotcha. Um, so, and I think this works well with the growing interest in private uh, market securities. And so, you know, yeah. when I, as recently as five or six years ago, the idea of, you know, that was, that was a private, private market stuff was a sleeve inside a sleeve inside a sleeve. Yeah. And now, you know, you see, you know, you see the big institutional guys like Yale, you know, it's 50%. And so oh, yeah. Yeah. I think you know, we'll see more nuanced portfolios, uh, you know, um, um, you know, kind of the 2020-2020 model. I mean, there's a bunch of different ways to think about how you wrap in gold and fixed and, yeah. and, and these sorts of things. And so I think that advisors are going to have a, a really interesting opportunity to think about accessing these previously non-public assets or these non-publicly traded assets in new product formats. So not just REITs, yeah. but tokenizing. And so I think that's going to be really exciting, uh, interesting. And so I would, you know, I would, you know, I, I would, yeah, that, that's not the right thought to close on, but it's a thought to close on. No, no, no. Um, I think that's an interesting way to just kind of, do it too. Like, I mean, where my head goes again, it's like, if you're kind of your run of the mill advisor and all of a sudden you've got all these new kind of asset classes, things to invest in, like you, you, you mentioned listed infrastructure, like, what do I know about that? Right. Maybe, maybe it fits, maybe it doesn't. Am I even qualified enough to do it? Right. <laughs> so like my, my head kind of wonders where technology will enable advisors to do that in the right way so that you know, one, they mitigate their liability, right? You don't want to be an advisor and recommend something and get sued. That sucks. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, with innovation will come new things, right? So, yeah. yeah. So there you go. We're at an hour. Did you get yeah. what you're looking for? Uh, I mean, I think so for now. Um, do you want to wrap up with anything here real quick, Kevin, to sign off or we can just pause um, it I, and say know, until next time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that um, if 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 you're an advisor and crypto terrifies you, I mean, I think you have two opportunities. One is avoid it, um, which isn't necessarily a bad decision. Or the second one is to uh, investigate it. And um, I recommended Masari. I think that's a you know that's a great place to start. It'll just lead you in a bunch of other places. Yeah. And, um, there is a lot of there's a lot of fog out there. There's a lot of bad projects out there. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that'll just make your skin crawl. But um, I, I think that the the betting line is that there's a there there. And if you are planning on being in this business longer than about the next five years, I think you know there's it's worth it to get uh, to certainly be conversationally competent. Yeah, because your clients are there as well. And at some point they're going to get 
tired of you just saying no all the time. And, and you may have to do that because of your license or because of what you think is prudent. Um, but there's a lot of ways to say no. Yeah. Uh, and, and coming from a place of ignorance, you know, my is, is quite different than, you know, I've given a lot of thought and I've given it a lot of thought and people ask me about what I recommend. And I'm, my, I'm more comfortable saying what I told you, which is I actually don't, I yeah. wouldn't recommend it, but yeah. if you do, um, here's how, here's how I would recommend that you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so cool. I think, yeah, there you go. There, there you go. Um, let's leave it there. So thank you. Uh, I appreciate it. Yep. See you, everyone. We're going to pause this here and we'll catch you in the next one.